In the brand new book, Dear By Men, author, peer counselor, and creator of the hashtag Bisexual Men Speak, J.R. Youssef offers an unapologetic guide for readers who are Black, Mask, and Bi. The book features cutting social analysis, personal stories, and reclaims bi-plus visibility in a culture of erasure. It also offers practical feedback on how to unlearn internalized biphobia and homophobia, fight back against erasure and stigma, navigate sex, dating, partnerships, marriage, friendship, and much more. It's available now wherever books are sold. North Atlantic Books is offering listeners 25% off plus free shipping. Purchase Dear By Men at www.northatlanticbooks.com and use code CURIOUS25 at checkout for 25% off and free shipping. U.S. mailing address required. Let's face it, I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money. Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous, like two bedroom suite instead of a one bedroom suite? So you're like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room. So you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your, your guys's room. Is it like really adulting? Oh, I love adulting. And you know what else I love? is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hey, curious people. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and welcome to Getting Curious. Can marijuana legalization save us all? I'm very curious about marijuana legalization and where we are on marijuana legalization. This is something that affects millions of people's lives in America. There's deep history to the the history of legalization uh, or decriminalization and criminalization of marijuana in this country. Um, I had the opportunity to research that and write about it in my uh, second book, Love That Story. Um, but I want to expand. I want to talk to people who are smarter than I and are you know more versed in the history of marijuana legalization and where we are now. Um, and I also kind of want to test my knowledge um, with someone because there has been such a shift in public opinion on marijuana since the 70s. Now weed is either legal or decriminalized in many states. But because it's legal in some places and not legal in other places in the United States, this is creating a really messy situation on top of what was already a very messy situation. So where are we going and what's the path forward? To answer the question of can marijuana legalization save us all, we are bringing in Shalene Title. Shalene is an attorney and longtime drug policy activist who has been writing, passing, and implementing equitable cannabis laws for over 20 years. She is a former top regulator for the state of Massachusetts, where she served as commissioner of the Cannabis Control Commission from 2017 to 2020. Her primary focus is running the nonprofit think tank Parabola Center, which is a nonpartisan think tank of legal professionals and drug policy experts coming together to protect people, not corporations. 
Their mission is to provide everyone with education, access, and expertise to support cannabis legalization policies that put people and small businesses first before big corporations. Wait, Shalene, how are you? Are you having a good day? Oh, I'm having a great day. Yes. Julia and Alison and I are having a wonderful time chatting. And Shalene, where do we find you? Where are you talking to us from? Boston, Massachusetts. Where you are a lawyer. You're an attorney and you're a drug policy activist. So, and, and you have an incredible career. Will you just tell us like, kind of just like what your day-to-day is and like what you're doing right now, just to like set the scene for like our listeners. Absolutely, yeah. So I've been working on drug policy for over 20 years, but right now I'm primarily focused on writing and passing equitable marijuana laws. And I try to do consulting for state governments as well. And I try to do a lot of education for people on this topic. So... What was the deal with, like, weed criminalization in the first place? Well, let me just say it's really important to understand the history before we talk about the now, because I think it can give us a lot of keys and secrets and ideas for how it's going to go in the future. So thank you for asking me that first. Uh, Of course. So the deal with marijuana criminalization is that it's pretty recent. So 100 years ago, people could use marijuana in the U.S. quite freely Um, Since the 1800s, it's been used as a medical product. So like most drugs in the U.S., you would get them from a doctor in a pharmacy. And they were usually some kind of like tonic or elixir. So you might have a tonic for a particular condition, or you might have a tonic for like hysterical women, you know, that could have had anything in Uh, it. Yeah. So it was like this for a long time, up until like the turn of the century. And then you had to label what was in these tonics. And then there was some regulation, Um, but it was largely going fine. You could access cannabis. You could buy, um, you could even buy it to smoke. They were called Indian cigarettes. Um, But in 1930s, that's when we started to have a problem. And the main problem was a man named Harry Anslinger. It can be traced back to one person. That man. This awful man. He's like basically a Disney villain. And also, it was like, it was like those silent films because they were like racializing like weed and being like racist fucks about weed. But it was that fucking guy. But I didn't continue, please. I'm so sorry. Oh, so we swear on this podcast. Okay, good to know. <laughs> oh, yeah, you can totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can totally cuss. It's like a college podcast, you know? <laughs> Like, it's not like a high school podcast. It's like a college podcast. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, let's explain this to people together since you know about it. So this fucker, Harry Anslinger, he was extremely racist. He was racist by 1920 standards, which means that says something. So he was in charge of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which was like the uh, pre- one of the predecessors to today's Drug Enforcement Administration. And he had been in charge of, among other things, alcohol prohibition. So alcohol prohibition ends and he needs something to do. I imagine, you know, he can't lock people up as easily. You know, his funding might be drying up. And so marijuana gets his attention. This was also around the time that We were seeing a shift from medical use and these tonics and elixirs to a lot of recreational use. Um, And that was in many ways tied to Mexican immigrants and the jazz scene. And so, as you can imagine, for a racist man, uh, this kind of made his blood boil. So he became obsessed with marijuana. 
and ended up writing um, the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act. And what this law did, this is very interesting, especially if you're thinking about right now and what's going to happen next. It did not outright criminalize marijuana. It made it so that you had to pay a tax and get a special stamp. And what happened was they then never issued these stamps. And so it was criminalized in practice. Mm. And so the way that he got this law passed was not by talking about the drug in any way. It was not about marijuana at all. It's part of this history in our country where criminalizing drugs doesn't have anything at all to do with the drug, but it has to do with racism and often targeting one particular community. And so on the floor of Congress, he told this story about how this drug was making people go crazy. If you're familiar with Reefer Madness, this was around that time. Yes. So it was making the black jazz musicians violent. It was making white women sleep with black men. All of these myths that were designed to infuriate people and bring out racist undertones. And so it passed. It passed with maybe half an hour of discussion very easily. And that's how we ended up with criminalization. When does like marijuana consumption become like outright illegal, like by law, not like by practice? Right. So after 1937, we saw people arrested because they didn't have this stamp, right? So the first people I think to be arrested, it was 18 months uh, imprisonment for possession without the stamp. And then I think four years without the stamp for dealing. So we were working with that for many, many decades. But the war on drugs by name um, started in 1971. Which was Nixon. Which was Nixon, the next villain. And we saw that actually um, coming up before that, there was a change in culture where marijuana was becoming more accepted. um, And the tax stamps were being questioned, but being pretty strongly questioned. And so that was when we got the Controlled Substances Act. And this outright criminalized marijuana and all of these other controlled substances that were put into categories uh, called schedules, which are ostensibly... What year was that again? 1970. And then that's when it became like so bad. Under Jimmy Carter, he actually said that marijuana should be decriminalized. Um, And then with Reagan, there was this huge backlash, right? And we have to kind of be ready, you know, like anything could be coming next. Yes. But yeah, so 1970, there's this Controlled Substances Act and uh, the schedules, the different categories affect how people can access these different medicines. And marijuana is put into Schedule 1, which means it has no accepted medical use. Um, heroin is also on that schedule, and that's where it remains today. Yes. Do you mind if I'm only going to do this once, I swear. Do you mind if I read a quote? This quote is so, so shocking. I feel like I have to read it verbatim. So this is from Nixon's counsel, um, who it was decades later. I think he was just kind of maybe like in this like fuck it mode. Oh my God, I put this in my book, I think. Hmm? I think I I think I included this. I think I included it because it made me like, it made me like throw up when I saw it the first time. Yeah. But tell me. And tell our listeners, because it's so good. Okay, so warning, you may want to throw up when you hear this. This is a real quote. He said, you want to know what this was really all about? The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, 
the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or blacks, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. You know what's really scary about that outside of what's already so scary about that? If you replace that with trans people and like queer organizations, like mm. like for now, like we're seeing this playbook with trans people and queer people. Right. Like that's how the right is treating queer people. Like they're like lying about us night after night. They're saying that like we're threat to children. We're saying that we're like we're just threat to like the the future of society. It's like being, and it, it's like you know we're we're a threat to women. We're a threat to kids. We're a threat like all that. And like they're going, they already are trying to like arrest parents of like trans kids. They're trying to like a lot of these like anti trans laws are like stretching like about out of adulthood and saying like we can't have gender affirming care up to twenty six, which like proves the point that it was never about kids. Mm-hmm. Like it's about like control, but that's, yes, it's a playbook for oppression and control. Yes. It's the whole, like, you know, don't look over here. Like look over there, drug users, immigrants, trans people, like they're coming for you. Yeah. It's exactly the same playbook. I just like, it's like Mississippi, like Arkansas. There's like all these places where like wrong place, wrong time. Like you're fucked. And like marijuana still uses a reason to like cause family separation, mm-hmm. like irreparable financial harm and loss of opportunities. And like, incarceration and all of these things that like we just shouldn't be able to be used for that and I just wish we could get there faster the most frustrating part for me though is that um I think there's this looming threat which is the tobacco industry and other wannabe monopolists that would like to take over the marijuana industry And I think that neither the Republicans nor the Democrats are doing anything yet to prevent that. Ah, I'm so stressed out, Shalene. What are we going to do? How are we going to get it? So who else is trying to fuck it up? Um, So there is an organization called CPAIR. Um, And it stands for some like very innocuous name, like Coalition for Policy, Education and Regulation. It doesn't even have marijuana in the name. Um, And they present themselves as a marijuana policy advocacy group, but an educational group, but the members are Altria, which is basically Philip Morris, uh, Molson Coors, uh, Reynolds America, and in general, all of these companies that have so far not gotten into the industry because it's still federally illegal, it's still made up of small businesses But once it's legal, they're going to swoop in unless we stop them from doing so. Can I just tell you, this is why I do the pod, because like, I, this is how I learn. Hey, it's Jonathan Van Ness. Americans United for Separation of Church and State defends your freedom to live as yourself and believe as you choose, so long as you don't harm others. Core freedoms like abortion rights, marriage equality, public education, and even American democracy itself rest upon the wall of separation between church and state. Christian nationalists are attacking these freedoms, seeking to force us all to live by their narrow beliefs. Americans United is fighting back. Freedom without favor and equality without exception. 
Learn more about AU at au.org slash curious. If you follow me on socials or listen to Getting Curious and Pretty Curious, then you'll know I've been on a real makeup journey over the last few years. I've especially been enjoying a more colorful eyeshadow moment, and I've been loving incorporating Thrive Cosmetics' full line of makeup into my routine. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. One thing that's really major about Thrive is how much they're prioritizing giving back. It feels good to know that when I support Thrive, Thrive turns around and supports the communities around them too. I also love that their high-performance formulas are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free and have zero parabens, sulfates, and phthalates. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash curious. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash curious for 10% off your first order. So... Where is weed legal in the U.S.? Where is it not legal in the U.S.? Where, I mean, just, or just like some loose examples, like you don't have to like go into like all 50 states. And then what like, what fuckery is that creating in terms of like criminality, um, you know, prosecution, civil asset forfeiture, but also being able to store the money somewhere? Because I have read a lot of articles about how like a lot of stores can't store their money anywhere because banks aren't allowed to hold it federally, but are some states, have some states made laws where like you can put the money in like a state or like a local bank or something? Or are these people just having like, because that's not safe if you're just like keeping all your money like downstairs in a weed shop, like you got to put it somewhere. And not only is it not safe, it's like not making any interest, which isn't smart and rude because every other business gets to. So yeah, all those things. Well, I want to explain the banking situation because this has got an enormous amount of press and attention, Um, but it's a little bit more complicated. So on the one hand, small businesses, because of federal illegality, uh, they find it very difficult to find banking services. They can't access loans. Um, Typically, you have to just get loans from your family and friends, which, as you can imagine, that's very difficult for equity. It makes uh, businesses really inaccessible to people. And so it would be great if we had banking reform. We need that. At the same time, there is a push for big banks to get involved in marijuana, which I think would be a bad thing um, at this point and potentially in the future as well. And that effort is sort of hiding behind this idea that uh, small businesses are keeping all of their cash um, in big vaults and boxes. And this is how I learned this. So I was a regulator in Massachusetts and I had heard that a major problem was all of this cash that was sitting around and causing robberies. And so what we did was we created a way for businesses to pay their taxes at the counters in cash. So we worked with the Department of Revenue. We set up these tax collection counters all around the state. Um, This was several years ago. And last year, I decided to check on how much cash had been collected. Do you want to guess? How much? Zero. There was no cash collected. And the reason is because this is kind of a myth. Actually, every dispensary in Massachusetts collects, uh, allows the use of debit cards, and they have some kind of electronic workaround. 
So I say all that to say, yes, there's a problem with security. There's a problem with robberies. We do need banking reform. But at the same time, we can't be tricked into letting big banks into the marijuana industry. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I mean, okay. So, so basically dispensaries already are paying their taxes. Mm -hmm. They're not getting robbed any more than anybody else is getting robbed. And so really this isn't rocket science. We just need federal banking reform. And, yes, and. And. And this is really like the key to all marijuana law reform, in my opinion, is we fix the problem, but we don't just fix it with some corporate free-for-all that's going to benefit big businesses more than small, which tends to be our default, right? So in almost every case, it involves making a change, but then also thinking about these mom-and-pop shops and these Black-owned businesses that have been very tenderly and with great difficulty cultivated in many different states with a lot of intention, with a lot of... um, struggle to get these laws passed. I'm getting emotional just like talking about these businesses. But we can't just let them get wiped out, you know, as soon as federal legalization comes. So, for example, in this case, yes, we want banking reform. And so it would include allowing businesses to access traditional banking and lending. But also in marijuana specifically, we can fix some of these other problems that we see everywhere else. And we can make sure that small businesses and minority owned businesses actually have access to lending, you know, and they're not shut out of the entire process. And we can do that through legislation. I love that. So how, um, so, so to set this, so, okay. So now a lot of states have legalized, um, the people who have legalized like the dispensaries and these, these mom and pop shops who you worked with, they found ways to like pay their taxes, to pay their dues, employ people. Like they've worked so hard. And now this like loom of, or this, this threat looms around federal legalization because like we don't want these big businesses like influencing so much. And it's like, yeah, when you're building something, it's really important because once it's built, it's really fucking hard to undo it. And so it's like the building is really important and that's where we are right now. And that's something I think I've just been really not understanding. One of my biggest takeaways from our conversation is like, I've just been kind of really focused on legalization. I'm like, it just needs to be legalized. It needs to be legalized because I want people to stop getting thrown in jail and like civil asset forfeiture. I, I really want it to stop being a reason for police to be able to like arrest people and hurt people in really significant ways. But it is also true that it's like, I don't, I don't want to rush so that people don't get like long-term gain from like this really lucrative potential because we were just like being really one track minded towards like one particular goal. Like multiple things can be true at once. I'm so happy right now. <laughs> You got it so clearly. Um, Can I tell you one thing, though? I have actually something pretty optimistic to tell you. So at my organization, Parabola Center, we've done some survey research that we'll be releasing shortly. And I was very pleasantly surprised by the results. So we asked people about these concepts of social equity, what they care about when it comes to legalization, what values they have. And I was expecting that we would hear from young, liberal people of color that they really care about equity. And that, that's what happened. But we also found that this concept of equity, which we defined as using marijuana laws to try to repair some of the harm done by prohibition, was popular across the board. 
And we found that with data for progress polls as well, a majority of people um, and even a majority of Republicans support policies where we take tax revenue from uh, legal marijuana and we reinvest it in those communities that were most harmed by prohibition. And so I think this actually transcends party lines in some ways because it resonates with an idea of fairness that we all have. Because if we understand that these laws were not enforced in a fair way, then we understand that something needs to be done. Well, then what's the fucking holdup with these goddamn Republicans who don't want to get on board with like the more Democratic proposals that I feel like do kind of accomplish that? There are bipartisan bills um, already for legalization. Um, There are libertarian organizations that support direct reparations, amazingly, for people who have had drug convictions. Do you know um, the Reason Foundation, for example? No. So they are a libertarian organization, um, but they actually put out a report recently that suggested that direct reparations would be a good way to handle, you know, what we understand has been very unfair about the way that drug laws have been enforced. So I think we're in a phase where we're still um, doing a lot of research. We're still, um, it's still early. Like we don't have a perfect legalization bill yet that would solve these problems. And I think that the best ideas could come from anywhere at this point. These ideas of fairness, like even a lot of Republicans back those ideas on the whole, but then I still feel like they get like, I guess maybe by the whole system. I don't know. I feel like Republicans are fuckers, but maybe their hearts are nice and sometimes. Well, um, no, I, I mean, in Florida, you can even lose your driver's license. Like, why? Why? It just, it makes no sense that you should lose your driver's license, even if you accept everything that they say about drugs. Um, I think you're right, too. Like, we allow, and, and often it is Republicans, we allow politicians to just espouse a concept or a platitude and we don't check the details, right? So, um, I mean, on the Democratic side, sometimes it's it's equity and justice. I think on the Republican side, it's, uh, you know, small businesses, competition, fairness. But if we're not reading the bills, then uh, those words mean nothing. Don't you just love when someone looks at you and says, what were you up to last night? Well, no matter how late you were up the night before, Lumify Redness Reliever Eye Drops can help your eyes look more refreshed and awake. Lumify dramatically reduces redness in just one minute to help your eyes look brighter and whiter for up to eight hours. No wonder it has over 6,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. You won't believe your eyes. You know you can trust them, though, because they're made by the eye care experts at Bausch & Lomb, and they're backed by six clinical studies. Eye doctors trust them, too. They're the number one recommended redness reliever eye drop. The one and only Lumify is an amazing drop that will have people saying something's different about you in the best way possible. So check out LumifyEyes.com to learn more. Let's face it, I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money. Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous, like two bedroom suite instead of a one bedroom suite? So you're like in-laws or like 
your friend could stay over there in that room so you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your your guys's room is it like really adulting oh i love adulting and you know what else i love is not waiting to make smart financial decisions i also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like yes good credit so let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions which we love um but anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Success stories. Like in a perfect world, what's your fantasy? Like what's your legalization fantasy for weed? So what would happen ideally uh, at the federal level? My fantasy is three things. First, we just let all the people who are locked up for cannabis out. That is priority number one. Let them out of jail. Um, stop this shit where, you know, you can't get public benefits if you have a convict conviction, you know, expunge automatically all the records, like deal with all of the criminal justice reform. And by the way, we can just do that. We don't even have to address any of the other stuff. We could just do that in a bill on its own. Priority number two, I think would be um, allowing the states to keep doing what they're doing, regulate it, um, make sure that there are sensible public health and safety protections in place, but generally allow it to keep moving as it is. And then number three would be to prevent monopolies. So I've written some language that uh, A, would just help prevent monopolies in general, but B, it would keep tobaccos, it would disqualify tobacco companies from holding a marijuana license because of the way that they've lied to the public. It's documented. Um, they manipulated their products for profit. And they've done it once. We know it. We should not allow them to do it again with marijuana. It kind of reminds me like how I talk about I'm pretty curious. Like beauty doesn't, it touches everything. Like it's not only is it like how we show up and how to achieve looks and like what we like and what we don't like, but it's also like economy and it's misogyny and it's gender and it's history and it's race and it's like industry. And it like touches all these things. It's like not just, and marijuana is kind of really similar. It's not, it's like, it's so interlayered and it's so, and there's like a lot to like untangle there. So I kind of thought, what I've learned so far, it's like federal legalization, like isn't the unicorn, like the perfect fix, like unless there's like, like a lot of objectives that we get into that legalization, which I don't know with the cinemas and the mansions and then like the coach Tuberville and with our Senate and like our electorate, I'm just like stressed. Like, is there anything that you, or yeah, like what, like, High, low, best case, worst case, legislatively, or is it just, or you're kind of already said that you don't see any legislation that would fix everything. You get the question, even though that was really convoluted. Just where are we right now in like federal legislation? Yeah, let me answer that like kind of in the ideal world and then in the real world. So I think in the ideal world, if we took incremental steps in the right direction, then we could get there. So if we started with the criminal justice reform, right, and we just expunged all records and we restored the benefits to people with convictions um, and we just allowed, like, say, possession and what we call social sharing, where you're not selling it, but you're just sharing with your friends, um, that would be a really good first step. And then we could use that time to kind of collect data and design a national framework. And then the second step could be 
in these different states, we have pretty good programs, right, that have these mom and pop shops, these minority owned businesses. If they are able to conduct business with each other, so that's called interstate commerce, um, that would be the next step in federal laws and it would be fair, right? It wouldn't be like, it would be fair and it wouldn't allow for Amazon, who has, by the way, lobbied all of the federal, uh, endorsed. Amazon has endorsed all of the federal legalization bills on the table um, and the alcohol companies are working on them. The tobacco companies are working on them. It's because they want to swoop in and take over the national market. But we could stop that from happening if we only allowed these small social equity businesses to transact with each other. So that those are the incremental steps that I would take. Those are the ideal things that would happen. Now, I think what's likely to happen in the real world is that we might see the Biden administration reschedule marijuana. So remember, we talked earlier about the Controlled Substances Act and how marijuana is in Schedule 1. So it was leaked that the Biden administration is looking at um, changing the scheduling, and it was leaked that the HHS agency recommended rescheduling it probably to three. So three is where ketamine is, uh, anabolic steroids, testosterone, um, things that you can't just go to a store and get. Um, to me, that doesn't make a lot of sense to put it in Schedule 3 when in... Is there a 4? There's a 4, a 5, and a 6. Or, I'm sorry, there's a 4 and a 5. Mm-hmm. Where's alcohol and cigarettes? Yeah, that's the question. They're not on the list. They are descheduled entirely. These hoes... Excuse me. <laughs> um, marijuana should be... Um, delisted. Yes, so. it should be delisted, also called descheduled. That's exactly what we should do. Yes, yes. descheduled. Yes. Joe, put it on private, on, not in the yellow pages. You can't even <laughs> look her up because she's not there. Marijuana doesn't live there anymore. You know? I do. It's yep. interesting that, mm-hmm. like, how someone learned something first and because people learned racist shit first, especially around like weed and the consumption of weed, is there any playbook to like combating that when people already like have these deeply held beliefs about like racism and weed consumption? That's so insightful. Um, You know what I think we can look to is the first medical marijuana laws, which were passed in the nineties Uh, largely by the LGBTQ movement. And you know how they did it was compassion, compassion. So people had been living for, you know, decades and decades with these racist ideas that Anslinger and company had uh, planted. But there's this woman, um, my hero, Brownie Mary. Have you ever heard of her? No. So Brownie Mary, I think her real name is Mary Jane Rathburn. Um, She was a nurse and she was in San Francisco (gasps) I bet you have heard of her. Yes, yes. And she became well-known for bringing cannabis brownies uh, to people in the hospital who were seriously ill. She was finding that people with AIDS, it helped with their wasting syndrome, and it was helping people with cancer. And she, she would just show up every day with dozens of brownies and hand them out. And she got arrested multiple times. And every time she got arrested, she would just go back and do it again. And she was so bold. She was so uh, firm in her belief and so sympathetic that the city of San Francisco 
eventually stopped arresting her and they let her distribute her brownies. That's what led to the first California medical marijuana law. That's what led to marijuana laws around the country and now what we have. And it's really, I think, all due to these these folks in San Francisco. Oh my God. I love that story. This is so emotional. Um, Best option. I think we covered like best option for weed legalization. What's the worst one? The worst is a corporate free-for-all where we either deschedule or we pass federal legislation to legalize and we don't put in any protection from monopolies because what's going to happen immediately is Amazon, Uber, Philip Morris, Molson Coors, all these people who are waiting in the wings are going to swoop in and use their existing lobbying power, resources, and infrastructure to take over the industry. And we're going to put all of these small shops out of business. And the worst part is we could end up with a situation where we have a patented pharmaceutical drug that's legal and everything else is still criminalized. And it, like, will suck. It would suck. Like, they'll grow it, and, like, all the strains will suck, and we won't have all of our, like, gorgeous types and, like, all of our yummy little, like, neighborhood stores with all of our, like, yummy stuff. That could absolutely... In fact, not only could that happen, that's kind of where we're headed with the bills that are on the table right now. And that's why we need a big course correction. (sighs) God damn it. (laughs) But... We're gonna have to, like, reach across the aisle and stuff. We're gonna have to, like... God damn it. I'm t- these people are wearing me out. Let me tell you what Parabola Center does, though. Yes, please. That's, I, that's what we need to see. We went into the dip, and now we're going into, like, the optimism. Let's go yes. into it. Like, how can we help? So um, so I mentioned I was a regulator in Massachusetts, and I worked with many other um, activists and attorneys here. Um, and what we found, this is true of many other states, is that a lot of the policies that we ended up implementing just came from conversations like this. Like the way that you and I were just bullshitting a few minutes ago, like maybe we can do this, maybe we can do this with schools. That's really how these ideas came up, um, largely led by the same people of color who had been targeted by the war on drugs. We put in all of these policies, they are in place, they're working. And what we found is We can keep doing that if we fight for it, right? I think the most important thing is that when policymakers, and this is obviously harder in Congress than it is at the state level, but the basic principle applies. When policymakers approach something, they're going to be accosted by lobbyists. But if they also talk to activists and people who care and they have language and legislation and concrete ideas and answers to the questions from them too, I think that they're open to it. And we've seen that they're open to it. So that's what Parabola Center does. It's very narrow. Um, We focus on marijuana policy that would put racial equity and public health above corporate profits. We need to get you in like a gorgeous public hearing so that you can tell everyone in case this episode doesn't go as far as we need it to. (laughs) So, So two things. This is what I would tell the public is first step, get educated. Second step, anybody can lobby, right? You don't have to be a lobbyist. So the education is what we're really focused on at this point, because most people don't know about this threat, right? Most people are just like, legalize it, and everything will take care of itself. I thought that. That's what I time. thought. Yeah, most people do. So for example, we have a crash course over the summer. Um, last year, uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, spoke to us, Ben from Ben and Jerry's were there. It's a really cool time when you can just share information, you know, get everybody on the same page. We're going to do it again this year. And I think that first step of like, 
what do they call it? Singing from the same page when you're in choir, uh, just yeah. getting everybody together. Then the next step yes. is making sure that, you know, we have a narrative, that we are lobbying. Um, but I think that first step is education and getting on the same page. We got, because right now we're all like, nah, ba, boo, ba, <laughs> Like, we're like, we're like not yeah. even doing like pretty songs at all right now. Yes. yes. So I was like, <laughs> like some of us are like, it's like all fucked up. Like that was like, but what we need to be doing is like some gorgeous other song that's all from the same page. You're so right. <laughs> it's like you started this interview by saying, Thing, really people are on both sides of the aisle are a lot closer on this. They're sick of big money interest. They're sick of like, you know, fear mongering. They're sick of like the rich getting richer and like no middle class. They're sick of like people getting fucked over and like not having an opportunity, like of uh, just unfairness. They're sick of unfairness. Um, and, you know, depending on who you're listening to, you might think that the system is unfair for whatever reason, but that doesn't really matter as much as like trying to figure out, well, I think it is really important that we understand why it is like that, but I also really want us to make a future where people can like succeed and thrive um, and not big corporate interests in um, the marijuana industry. <sighs> yeah. Uh, to practice what I was just preaching a minute ago about like coming armed, you know, with, with policy. I've struggled with that, with the rescheduling rumor because I'm mad about it. I'm mad about it. But at the same time, I think if we want to be smart and we want to be thinking long-term, then we have to come with an alternative. So uh, we're part of a coalition that's called United for Decriminalization. And what we wanted to do was not was to give Biden an alternative, because my guess is the way that this leaked, you know, that there is some hope that by doing something about marijuana, right, we're going to appeal to young people and, you know, the voters who, like you said, seem to be very much on the fence. Without scaring the ones who they're afraid of, like, being on the fence and that's, like, yeah. why they don't want to, like, just de-status de <laughs> yeah. it altogether. So what we wanted to do was give an alternative that would be helpful, but something that Biden alone could do, you know, and isn't necessarily going all the way with descheduling. So um, he could restore public benefits for uh, federal employees that have um, convictions. He could publicly talk about his support for legalization with monopoly protections, which is something he talks about all the time in other industries. And he could... Because um, yeah, he's very pro-union. Yes, he's pro-union. He's pro-labor. He's pro-competition. Um, I think the, really the only reason he hasn't talked about that in the context of marijuana is because no one has asked him to. Right. I think that it's because of honestly a lot of the parts that he had to play in um the three strikes you're out stuff. And like in the way that weed was criminalized in the first place, I think that he's kind of scared about pointing too much too much of his voters and supporters like to that history of the nineties. Right. Um and not repeating the Jimmy Carter and, situation because that's exactly what happened when Carter endorsed decriminalization. Oh, because he had been part of the criminalization laws prior. I think so. Wow. Wait, I I, I maybe I misunderstood you. I'm saying that, I mean, C Carter was not like a drug warrior like Biden was. Yeah. But I'm saying. But he, well, he, but he was like a governor who probably like signed some shit that said like, you know, I'm against weed. And then he like turned, is that not right? I wonder, we just, we need to do like what happened to the Carter presidency. I need to do like an episode of the pod about that. Because there was a lot in those four years. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be learned, right, from what's happening today too. Um, but yeah, just just to your point, I think that, Biden might be concerned about going so far, you know, that he alienates people or causes a backlash, which is rational. I I did hear, I, I get that. And I also give him so much credit and I do respect him, but I also am frustrated about a lot of things. And I, I think <clears throat> someone said it to me like this. And I think this is just so accurate. I just feel like Democrats tend to run 
from their base, but Republicans run towards their base. Like, yes. And um, I wish that we would just like get the undecided people who are disillusioned from that. Cause I just have so many friends who would, who just would show up and who would turn out if they weren't so tired of being disillusioned by democratic policy or by Democrat policy. And just to say, I do think take Biden taking those steps uh, that I outlined um, in terms of real marijuana reform and not just talking, that would be running towards the base, right? That would be getting a lot of undecided people who might care about this issue. Shalene, here's the other thing I learned today. I'm obsessed with you. If I was straight, I would like just be like, are we, are we lovers? Which is how I can tell I'm so not straight because I talk like that. I can't <laughs> help it. But like, I'm literally so obsessed with you. Like, where do we follow? Are you like more on X? Are you like explaining weed law, weed law on TikTok? Do you be talking about stuff on Instagram? Where can we follow along? And where can we, is, is Parabola Center big on IG or TT? Ah, the obsession is mutual. Um, yes. So para- at Parabola Center on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, we're on LinkedIn as well. Ooh, um, and then you can follow me, Shalene Title. I do explain things on X, quote unquote, less less so than I they used to. But um, yes, you can find me on, on Twitter. Shalene Title, Esquire, attorney at law, uh, future solver, fixer, mother of all dragons, and like slayer of problematic weed laws extraordinaire. Thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious. Um, that would be your Game of Thrones title, the one I just gave. We could add in some other things too, like House of Aslinger Slayage. No, he can't have a title in your... No. He's already had enough like space in our... Some other cool title, but yeah. Thank you for coming on. This was awesome. Thank you for being so curious and smart. Tell me more about that last part. Just like really good about like putting things together or something. And I've just like fallen more in love with you this entire podcast. <laughs> I learned so much from Shalene, y'all. I really was going around being a little frustrated with the sitch, um, really thinking that legalization was like a one-stop shop towards fixing all of these ills. And actually, turns out, it's big banking. We have to check big banking, um, big pharma. We got to check like the alcohol industry. There are so many like large, dark money, like lobbyist uh, people who stand to gain millions, if not trillions of dollars from the marijuana industry. So marijuana legalization does not save us all. It, uh, it depends on how the legalization is passed. We need to put pressure on our elected officials to pass legalization that um, supports small businesses and interstate commerce and also when when marijuana legalization is passed, um, it needs to be passed with uh, pre- or with preventions to prevent monopolies and to prevent the tobacco industry, which has a proven track record of harming public health for profits, uh, concealing evidence, and lying to people. You know whether they get sick or get or die or whatever. We just know that the tobacco industry has not had public safety at its heart. Um, and we shouldn't give them unfettered access into the marijuana industry. And I'd say same thing with alcohol. Um, all of these mom and pop shops, what I've learned is all of these states who have legalized marijuana and all of these small businesses have had to, they absolutely pay their taxes. They're not holding their stuff in like safes in the bottom of their businesses that make them more unsafe. They just end up having to do workarounds. They have to pay their taxes anyway. And they don't get write-offs because of the fact that marijuana is scheduled as a Schedule One drug. So they can't even write off legitimate business practices because we don't have the banking reform in place to support marijuana legalization um, the way that we need to for these small mom and pop shops. So because small mom and pop shops have really um, carried the brunt of getting the marijuana industry this far, we can't just like let them be flushed down the toilet 
with this legalization that gets passed, like with the cinemas of the world and um, and the mansions of the world and like the big corporate politicians who are like in the pockets of big of big corporations. So it is a very complex issue, but I think parabola, y'all, if I'm taking away anything, make sure you're following the Parabola Center. Make sure you're following Shalene Title and all the work that she's doing. What an incredible guest, right? I mean, I just learned so much from her. Um, and let's keep our eyes on 2024. And, you know, if you feel disillusioned by the Biden administration or just by, you know, our government in general, uh, maybe get involved with Parabola Center. As you heard, they're, she's, they're nonpartisan. They're they're calling bullshit on all the sides. Um, so work with them. And if you're passionate about marijuana reform and um, helping to undo some of the uh, damage that's been done to innocent people who are using marijuana over the last hundred years, work at the Parabola Center. And thanks for listening to Getting Curious. We'll be back with more Getting Curious next time. Thanks for listening. We love you so much. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. You can learn more about this week's guest and their area of expertise in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. And honey, there's more where that came from. You can follow us on Instagram at CuriousWithJVN. We are doing the most over there and it is so much fun. You can catch us here every Wednesday. And also make sure to tune in every Monday for Pretty Curious. Still can't get enough? Subscribe to Extra Curious on Apple Podcasts for commercial-free listening and our subscription-only show, Ask JVN, where we're talking sex, relationships, and so much more. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. Our engineer is Nathaniel McClure. Getting Curious is produced by me, Chris McClure, Julia Melfi, and Allison Weiss, with production support from Julie Carrillo, Ann Curry, and Chad Hall. <laughs>